Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Hello everybody! Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. Um, Are we recording, Harv? I always should check that. Yes, good. Right. Well, Stand Up Tragedy tonight is about tragic summer. That's the general feel of the night. And it's a nice sunny day for our tragedy tonight, which is good. Uh, Because tragic spring did not feel very springy. Uh, So I'm glad that Tragic Summer at least has the sunshine with it. Right, what is stand-up tragedy? Well, stand-up tragedy is a night where people stand up on stage and they do tragedy. Uh, So it's as simple as that. We invite performers from all parts of the arts to get up and do some tragedy. So we want to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. So expect to feel lots of different emotions tonight. Not all funny, not all sad, um, and be and expect also to hear tragedy on stage, which means that there will be sad things talked about, and so that's something to be aware of. Um, I don't know what those sad things are going to be, because uh, it's a variety night. I book really good acts, but I don't know what those acts are going to do. So I don't know where we're going to go. We could go really dark, we have done in the past, um, and we could go really light all night, who knows? Uh, that's the exciting thing about doing a variety night. But that's the thing, you, you need to remember that it's going to be tragic because tonight is a safe space to talk about unsafe things. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, and Stand Up Tragedy, we're a live night. Uh, we're also a podcast, so you'll be able to listen to what we do on stage uh, for you know over the next few weeks. They come out every two weeks at the moment. Um, and then you can tell your friends to listen to the tragedy if you've enjoyed it. Uh, and if you haven't, then I guess don't. Uh, simple as that. Um, So yes, so we're going to have three acts of tragedy linked around the theme of tragic summer. This is tragic climate. So yes, all I have to do is introduce your host for this act. Part one of tragic climate was bleak, so I have only very, very sad and depressing expectations of this this next act. But that's okay, we need to look at and talk about sad things. And one of those sad things is indeed uh, tragic climate. In fact, last last time we did uh, this section, uh, Alice Bell outed me as a climate change, uh, you know, con- contributor, significant contributor to such climate change and the uh, big part of the problem. Uh, and I have to own that, and, and I guess the rest of us do too. So put your hands together for Alice Bell. Me and Dave have been talking about the idea of climate as a stand-up tragedy topic for a while because we thought it would be a good, a good fit. It was a good thing to sort of experiment with. Um, and I, one of the reasons also I really wanted to do it was I'm fucking annoyed with everyone saying you have to cheer up about climate change. So, because like, climate change is really depressing. I think it is depressing. And you can feel really kind of... Um, a bit defeated by it and it can stop you from acting and so there's a lot of people that go you know what you should cheer up and just you know get on with it or, or even worse than that they go cheer up it's nearly not that bad and that's bollocks because it is really that bad <laughs> and, and so I was like yeah all these people who say cheer up are really fucking annoying let's have a whole event where we just sit there and get really depressed and embrace how awful it is and since then I got a job where my main responsibility is to share positive stories about climate change <laughs> So, awkward. Uh, Luckily, I don't think any of my colleagues are here. I just hope they don't hear the podcast. Um, So, yeah, the thing about this is the second of two nights. Uh, We had climate 
um, stand-up tragedy winter and this is summer and the idea was that maybe we could have like the two seasons because climate is kind of climate change is about the weather and or about the climate which weather exists in and the sort of sense of seasons and differences of temperature and we could have like the summer would all be about global warming and things being really hot and the winter could be about how actually we'll probably think about climate change in the UK which is it just being really soggy and damp and flooding and the weather being a bit shit um, because cold and rain can both be part of, of climate change. It's not just about global warming and things getting hot. Uh, it didn't really work out like that in terms of the act. Um, so it might be that we could think of it a different way of like the winter was quite dark and everyone was really depressed. And maybe tonight actually people will be a bit happy and uplifting. Or maybe everyone who I've booked will be really depressing again. I'm not quite sure. Let's see. But I have worked out that the timing, um, because we're at two and the time of year that it is, the sun is going to set during our act. And I don't know if that'll be atmospheric and it'll bring us down, or maybe it'll feel nice, or maybe feel warmed. I, I don't know. Anyway, but I, I hope the sun's setting for those of you who are here in the room rather than on the podcast. Maybe that'll add something for it. Um, so one of the reasons why I'm not going to talk too long, I'm going to introduce the, the acts, but I'm just going to do a little bit of chat at the beginning and a bit at the end. And one of the reasons I wanted to say at the beginning about why we were interested in climate change, other than just I wanted to get out some of the emotional annoyance of these people who say cheer up, is that... Climate change is something that's really hard to talk about. Like a lot of the things that get raised on stand-up tragedy, like um, things that, you know, death or um, terrorism or any of the other things that were mentioned earlier today. Um, it's something that we just, I think, as a, as a culture, we're just not very good at talking about. People, we're not good at talking about it. Even people whose job it is to professionally know lots about climate change, and perhaps especially those people, are not very good at really kind of looking in, in the eye and thinking about what it means as a kind of head fuck. You know, like we, we understand how the planet is fucked and we might be a scientist or a campaigner who could write you a beautiful detailed study of exactly how fucked up the planet is or what we need to do to change it. But if it comes to looking in the eye, the kind of tragedy of it and thinking about that, it generally put it aside and try and just not really think about it too much. And I think everyone does that, no matter what your engagement with climate change is, if it's something you kind of think about every now and again when you book a flight and you feel a bit guilty, or if it's something that you do regularly or an activist or that you work in, or just something you really care about. I think we do avoid thinking too much about it, really. Because, and there's reasons, there are good reasons for that. It's sad. It is sad. It is sad. And it's scary. It's really scary. And it comes with lots of guilt, and like lots of other things that we'd have issues with, you know, that it's understandable that something that's sad and scary and makes us feel guilty, we just sort of leave to the side to fester for a bit and not really think about. And on top of that, it's really abstract. So it's not just like, it's not, even if you really believe that climate change is happening, it's something that you only know because scientists have told you, or even if you're one of the scientists who's been involved in doing that kind of research and you feel that you've been involved in learning about it, you only know about it through these complicated instruments and some maths, and it, you can really believe in it, but it's still not really part of your everyday lived reality, because it is abstract. And that's one of the good things about, like, the story of climate change, something I find kind of inspiring and gives me hope, is that we do know about it. It's not obvious, and yet we've got that warning so that we we know that we can, we can at least try and act before it gets really, really fucking awful. It's kind of, it's one of the, like, humans are really shit and stupid and have caused climate change and continuing to make it worse, even though we know that it's a problem. Um, but we're also pretty bright because we realised it. Like, it's, it's not obvious. We could just be sitting here going, you know, it's a bit hot. 
rained a bit last year. You know, we, we could just be thinking that. And yet, because we're clever enough to check things in the sky and put, you know, bits of chemistry together with a bit of physics and some maths and not obvious things, we've done this and we've, we've discovered that it's a thing and we've known about it for several decades and we've then realised it and put some more funding in to do some more research in it and get more detailed stuff and then think about what we could do to tackle it. And that, that's a good thing. But, um, you know, just even... Even despite that, it's it's well because of all those different tracks that allow us to see climate change. It's abstract, and so it makes it even harder. And then on top of all this crap, like the guilt and the fear and the fact it's abstract, we've also got these dickheads that make deliberately make our conversation about climate change dysfunctional. And so it is something that I don't think we talk about. We need to just find ways to to find the language and different flexible ways of talking about it and and being able to feel it and deal with it. And so I hope we'll, we'll be able to do that a bit tonight. We'll maybe laugh, we'll maybe cry, we'll maybe scratch our heads, maybe learn something, or at least we'll just get used to it being something that is sort of around us and that we talk about and is part of our everyday lives rather than just this, this existential threat. It's sort of a lived threat, it's a lived existence, it's a lived part of our, our lives. Otherwise, we will be climate deniers. And this is why uh, Dave earlier said that I'd outed him as a climate sceptic. I meant that, Dave, he thinks it's all about him. I outed everyone as climate sceptic, or cli not climate deniers. Because we think of climate denial as some kind of weird sort of niche hobby that a few Americans and James Dellingpole have, you know, it's this odd thing that other people do, that evil, smelly people do. It's not, we all deny it a bit, I think. Even most climate activists and scientists and anyone who's engaged with it every day deny a bit of it. And we can't do that, we really can't do that. So I hope that if we come out tonight not even having learned anything or not even laughed, we'll maybe be a little bit less in denial. And with that, I will introduce our first actor with cheers, Teresa Ash. Can I have a big round of applause for... everyone. Um, I'm actually going to talk about those nasty climate deniers in America um, and talk about anti-environmentalism and how we came to a place where very powerful actors in world politics um, were feeling that the biggest tragedy of climate change is actually that any of us believe in it at all because for them this is a conspiracy. It's an environmental apocalyptic vision which has been conspired um, between scientists who want to get more funding and environmentalists, and, uh, environmentalists who want to influence mainstream politics. Um, and to understand how we got to a point where uh, political elites were kind of comfortable with just saying, now nah, we're not going to listen to science. Science doesn't have anything to tell us about climate change. Um, there are better ways of finding out about what's going on on the planet. You really have to go back to US um, politics in the 1980s um, and a very specific kind of Cold War context um, that was going on at that time. So you can look at the environmentalism of the 1970s in the US, and this is a, a very kind of nice, wide-ranging social movement, very popular. Um, it's got cross-party support. It's got a lovely agenda of um, cleaner water, cleaner air, cleaner soil, end pollution. Um, and it's an agenda that few people are really going to argue against. You know, nobody's going to say, no, I want my water polluted. Therefore, you have quite a nice um, environmentalism that's doing very well. It's winning legislation, it's doing really well. Then you have Ronald Reagan turning up in 1981, and Ronald Reagan is 
um, very much involved in that kind of very ideological Cold War, he sees the Russians as the most evil thing that has ever happened. They're a threat to America's way of life on every level. Um, and he starts to bring in this idea that actually environmentalism is a little bit worrying for the right in the US um, because it is saying that markets fail, that markets can't deal with everything, that there is pollution, um, and that what we need is a bigger state to try to cope with these problems. So that's quite an anti-right-wing discourse on um, the economic side of it. Um, so Reagan is quite suspicious of environmentalism. He starts putting his own people into um, organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency um, so that they can make sure that there's not too much legislation cutting pollution. Um, and this kind of explains why he doesn't like environmentalism, but it doesn't really explain how he got to the point where he doesn't like scientists and he doesn't like what scientists are saying and how he could reject that. Um, and again, to understand that, for me, it's, it's best to go to the Cold War context um, and think about what, something that happened in 1983, um, which was Reagan deciding that what he really, really needed was a strategic defense initiative, um, which some people will have heard of as the Star Wars program. This was the idea that you could have a network of... Um, uh, missile launches that could shoot out of the sky any of the nuclear bombs sent over by Russia. Um, and... What he wanted to do here, it sounds nice, it's defensive, yes, that's great, um, but it, it sounded like you would be able to protect the American people from attack by the Soviets, but really, because at this time, um, the two superpowers were operating under mutually assured destruction, which means that uh, neither one could send bombs to the other because then both would press the button and everybody would go up in smoke. So actually, by increasing his defensive capability, Reagan would be able to increase his aggressive capability. He was aiming for what he called a small nuclear war with Russia. Um, where he could sort of drop a few bombs on them. He'd be able to shoot down anything they sent back, and then he could send ground troops in through Europe. Um, so he turned to his scientists in America and said, I want the Strategic Defense Initiative. Can you lot sort this out, please? Um, at which point, scientists kind of said, well, no, that's a really bad idea. It's not only politically really bad, it's also technologically kind of doesn't make much sense. Um, one of the scientists who was saying this very loudly was Carl Sagan, who was um, a very popular scientist, had been on TV talking about the space missions. Um, he did a piece of research with NASA and a few other organizations, um, which was about modeling what would happen if Reagan got his small nuclear war. And they modeled a column of air from the surface of the planet up to the upper atmosphere, and they showed that with um, a nuclear war, you would have uh, dust self-lofting so that it would hang in the air around the planet and block out the sun. And this was the idea of nuclear winter, and it was analogous to the way that um, a meteor was thought to have um, blotted out the sun and killed off the dinosaurs. So this was a very big, scary, apocalyptic vision that Sagan was um, putting into the public uh, realm and really criticising Reagan's political aims um, and what he was trying to do with them in, as a Cold War leader. Um, so we can kind of see why Reagan kind of didn't like this guy. Um, but to take it deeper, you can also look at the way Reagan understood what scientists were for in the US. If you think about the Second World War, the Manhattan Project, the creation of the nuclear bomb, that was a period in which the state and scientists were working really closely together. Paul Edwards calls it mutual orientation. Neither side were really in charge, but the state and the military were putting big funding into science, and scientists were coming up with ideas that would help the US win uh, 
the Second World War, and then the 50s and 60s, the Cold War, um, giving them economic and ideological and um, military um, um, capabilities. Um, so Reagan is really getting to the point where he is seeing scientists as having turned against him. Um, they're using atmospheric modeling to show that his ideas are bad ideas. Um, and they're really, for him, they're, they're kind of rejecting their important role in the Cold War in as, um, uh, as, as that sort of mutually orientated attempt to deal with Russia and the threats that it poses. Um, so when a few years later that same community of atmospheric modelers are saying, well, look, there's this problem. It's called climate change, anthropogenic global warming. We've done all the models. It's really problematic. He sort of marries that distrust of environmentalism with that sense that the scientists in America are kind of hostile to him. They don't really get his world vision. They're not really kind of on the same side as him. Um, and he feels that he gives himself license to just kind of go, no. We're not going to worry about mainstream science anymore. We're going to get our information from right-wing think tanks uh, where everything has already been vetted ideologically um, so that I feel I can trust them. And even now, after the Cold War has ended, Reagan has gone, we've still got this sort of little pocket of Cold War history as a legacy in climate change science and in the way science and politics is dealt with in America um, so that... Uh, there are people there who are genuinely arguing that the biggest tragedy of climate change is that we believe in it at all. all right, thank you. Thank you, Teresa. And I, I should have said maybe an intro, um, but I didn't want to do the thing of like bigging people up loads because I know how awful that is as we established in the first act. Uh, but Teresa did that as her PhD and she's currently working on that as a book. So that was a, a proper academic expert that we had there talking about the history of the Cold War and climate change and maybe helping us understand a bit about how fucked our public discourse is on that. Uh, but now for something completely different. And if our act could start to come up, because I know they're going to take a few minutes, uh, I'm going to... Um, try and talk while they walk up, but they're being really slow, so maybe they do want me to pick them up, Blades. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dave and Ollie from the Sustainababble podcast. Um, when I first started hearing the Sustainababble podcast or hearing of it, I thought, God, this is another two white men who work in climate change doing talking to us. We don't need that. But then actually it's quite entertaining and I kind of really enjoyed it. And uh, they were being on, they've been on for a couple of months. Um, they're archived, I'm sure, online if you look it up. Um, uh, and they're taking a break at the moment, and I kind of miss it. So I'm really pleased that I booked them because I'm getting a little sustainable babble moment today, and we can share it with you now. And are you ready to start? No idea. <laughs> we'll see if the tech works. We can give them a round of applause while they try and press some buttons. Dave and Ollie. Hello, uh, we're sustainable babble, aren't we? We are. Hello. Yes. Hello. Uh, I'm Ol. This is Dave. Um, and yeah, we do a, um, a little podcast and it's called Sustainable. There you go. Yeah. And uh, we, we started the podcast because uh, the environment and politics and climate change is all 
really hard yeah. and really confusing and, and shit and, and shit um, and a lot of stuff is talked by people who sound like they know what they're talking about but um, we, were, we were very confused about it um, which is bad because our, our jobs is to not be confused about it <laughs> we get paid to, to not be confused about it but you are so um, yeah we, we started this little podcast and, and particularly I wanted to look at the, the people who who make it worse. So there's the tragedy of climate change, there's the tragedy of the planet frying, there's the tragedy of species being decimated, but there's also the tragedy of, of people who try to sort of make it sound like they're doing something to help when they're actually just knobheads. 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 Like this. This is celebrity knobhead. Will I am, will.i.am or bell.end, as I like to refer to him, who uh, we covered on our podcast a couple of months ago. He has got, uh, I don't know if anyone saw this, he has teamed up with global superheroes Coca-Cola. And what mm. he has done is he has invented uh, recycled clothes and bags and bow ties and stuff like that. And I, he's, he's marketed this as if it's a new thing. I don't think it's a new thing. I'm pretty sure at home my wife has got some leggings made out of recycled bottles and it's not that new a thing. Right? No, no, you, fleeces made out of plastic bottles, whatever. But, um, so we had a little look at it and, uh, well, it turns out a couple of things. One, they're not that recycled. It's like sort of a third of it is recycled. And then we were like, well, he's sort of quite, you know, high marketable fashion person. wonder how much these things are selling for. So we did this little thing on our podcast where I, I get my five-year-old niece to, to read out the sustainable um, of the week because it's, it's just funnier when you hear kind of rubbish being talked at, uh, talked at by a, a five-year-old girl. Um, so we had a little look at this bag. This is one of the things that uh, will.i.am is selling, and it's, it's a nice bag, I suppose. Nice bag, you know, yeah. It's nicer. You'll notice the MCM and uh, these things. And that's pyramids. a medium, medium stark backpack, mm. that is. Um, so, yeah, we, we, well, we thought, let's hear... This is what we do each week. We, uh, we, we ask Arabella to tell us some stuff. And um, this is what we said on the show. It's a little clip. Hopefully. £1,415. Uh, I'm so, sorry, Arabella. I, I didn't, didn't quite hear you. How much? £1,415. OK, uh, Arabella, I want you to think about I think you're having a little problem with your, with your reading, your... your it's crazy talk. Can you just say one more time how much this bag costs? £1,415! That's right. This bag, which is designed by Will I Am to make recycling normal and everyday, is available in Harrods for £1,415. It's, and it, we got quite angry about this, and Very it's angry. a sort of recurring theme on our, on our podcast. We we try to make uh, the environment lighthearted, but actually we just get really pissed off about everything. Yeah. Yeah. And for God's sake, it's like you're trying to kind of you know say who's yeah, got, who's got one skill. and a half thousand pounds? If I had one and a half thousand pounds, I would just burn it for fun. I wouldn't like and, and keep warm, which is probably a better thing to do than buying the medium start backpack for one thousand four hundred fifteen pounds. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing we get annoyed about on the podcast. And this. Mm. So I'm sure you were all aware that um, earlier this week was World Environment Day. 
um, which, mm-hmm. is, which is good, I suppose. Not to be confused with a couple of months ago, it was Earth Day, mm-hmm. completely different. different um, thing. And definitely not to be confused with Earth Hour. Yes, which is um, what this is. Yeah, so everyone on our Twitter feed, at least, got extremely excited about Earth Hour. Um, it's the hour in the year where um, you're encouraged to turn off the lights. Yay! Turn off do the it. Um, and, um, well, it's just... <laughs> this is the... Just, <laughs> oh, God, it's just... This sort of stuff crushing. happens. I'm using my power. I'm using my power. I'm using my power to save the Great Barrier Reef. I'm using my power. I'm using my power to raise children's awareness about the environment. There is hour to make our city more sustainable. To help business go beyond the hour. Just save my forest. (sighs) (laughs) What it is is this. Yeah, shit photos. Shit photos. Earth Hour is about taking photos of things which are illuminated to look good, unilluminated to look shit. Yes. And that's, uh, that's about as far as it goes. And uh, I Black, suppose. Blackpool's not even that great in the first place. <laughs> <I don't wanna. laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> sorry, that is well done. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, it, they. To be fair, so Earth Hour is a thing organised by WWF. They started it nine years ago in Australia, and they say, to be fair, they say it, it's not about cutting carbon emissions. No, they, it isn't. Um, <laughs> it's definitely not that. No. Uh, it's a kind of symbolic thing. It's a moment when everyone can sort of pause and think, oh, environment's important. I'll turn off my lights and. Uh, it's okay-ish as far as it goes, but they've been doing it for a decade now, and I don't understand what it's for. Um, no, and what it's for is for sitting in the dark, right? Like a <laughs> towel, or just closing your eyes and going to sleep, right? And you know how so our day jobs are environment stuff, and people always say to us, you're a bunch of hippies, and you just want us to sit in the dark, right? So what is a very good way to prove that is exactly what you want, is to have an annual festival that for one eight-thousandth of the year encourages everyone to sit in the dark and then go home and burn kittens and, you know, kick homeless people in the face for no reason <laughs> and, that, and that sort of thing. So that's, that, that annoyed us very much. Uh, other things that have annoyed us mm. include this. Yeah. Who knows what that is? It's a solar panel farm. It's where they grow solar panels. <laughs> and a mummy solar panel and a daddy solar panel love each other very much. Actually, technically, I don't think that's right. No. I, I think these are mirrors. These aren't solar yeah. panels. They're mirrors. These are, these are incredible things. So they look like they've sort of alien invasion type thing, but they're concentrated solar power. So you have a huge number of, of mirrors all pointed at the same spot, um, which is a tower in the middle, yeah. um, slightly phallic, fine. And it does... It has kind of saline solutions in it or something. I don't know. It does some clever shit, yeah, and creates energy. Um, Good thing. This one's in California. Problem is... Nevada. Is it? Yes. Carry on. Uh, Problem is, uh, you need that beam to be pointing at the right place. Mm. And sometimes they're not. (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes they're not. What this basically is is a death ray, right? And if you were to, for example, accidentally point all of these at some birds, you'd kill an awful lot of birds. Doesn't go, what you would doesn't do. go well. So uh, this, was, this was the news that uh, Nevada's uh, concentrated solar plant. Uh, 
accidentally missed their beam and, and what was the phrase? Vaporised. Turned white hot <laughs> and vaporised. 150 birds. Yeah. Casually flying by and then... Pfft. Now, if that, was, if that was me, or what would you do if you accidentally vaporised 150 birds? You'd say... I said sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry for doing that. And uh, it won't happen again. And yeah. here's some money for a bird sanctuary. A donation. 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 Anti-bird killing yeah. thing. Yeah. If I, especially if I was the boss. If I was the boss of a multi-million pound yeah. um, thing like this that had accidentally fried birds. And, you know, renewables have a bit of a bad name for bird killing. Um, when, when farms are known as... Uh, was it bat mincing bird slicing eco crucifixes, crucifixes yeah. which I've, <laughs> yeah. I've always quite admired even that's, though that's it's nice. that, that was the it. aforementioned Joan Sterling poll I think but what actually happened was and uh, we asked Arabella again to, to read out for us what the boss of the company actually said I hope you can hear this alright so uh, he said this we had some avian incidents during the week of January 11. Yeah, mm. avian incidents is what we had. 150 <laughs> avian incidents, actually, is what happened. Um, and the problem, as I'll pointed out, is that killing birds is what the Daily Mail likes to talk about, right? Mm. So solar panel sets 130... <laughs> they miscounted. There was 150, right? They should do their research. Birds on fire, uh, death ray. Um, and the reason why this annoyed me in particular is that I reckon as soon as the Daily Mail journalist had finished writing this story, they sat down and they ate some chicken for their dinner. What, the bird chicken? The bird chicken, mm. of which one billion are killed every year, just in the UK. Um, or maybe they went home to stroke their cat, um, which what? kills... The bird killer The bird cat. killer, which kills <laughs> uh, 55 million birds every year in the UK. Or maybe yeah. they drove their car, perhaps, which kills... Oh, what, the... The bird-killing bird car, killing yeah. car, which kills yeah. 30 million birds yeah. every year in the UK. But no, they just like to point out that, admittedly in a rather clumsy way, uh, they had <laughs> killed a whole load of birds. So that annoyed us. And then... Well, there's the, there's the other point as well, which, you know, these things are trying to generate energy in a way that, you know, prevents climate change. The bird killer... Bird-killing. Climate, climate change. change. It's, yes. Climate change is really bad for birds yes. and, you know, life... Uh, so, yeah, we get a bit cross about the Daily Mail, but that's hardly to be a surprise. But then stuff got more serious. Yeah. So, this is the tragic part. Of the yeah, we, yeah, this yeah, it's slightly this took us by surprise. I can't remember which week this was. But um, at first there was, you'll remember the war on drugs. I was there. <laughs> Evidently. Well done. Yeah. Um, and then we had the war on terror, still do have the war on terror, or the war against terror, but for reasons of acronyms, acronyms yeah, that got changed. The yeah. um, war on terror. Now, according to the Environment Agency, we have the war on fish, and specifically the top mouth gudgeon, the mm. fish that I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Extremely vicious predator, so much so. That uh, a couple of months ago, the Environment Agency put out a press release, which was the most extraordinary militaristic thing I have ever heard in my life. It talked about the war on the Topmouth Gudgeon. It talked about mobilising its people for an all-out operation to remove a, a, a fleet of Topmouth Gudgeon from a pond in Hackney, funnily enough, just over there somewhere. It was uh, extraordinary. It was, it was like it had been sort of co-authored. This press release had been co-authored by the bastard love child of George Bush and General Sir Mike Jackson. It was the 
language was, was like so totally bewildering. We were like, well, what the hell? I don't know what a Turkmouse gudgeon no. looks like. No. And we sort of assumed it must be a kind of, you know, barracuda. Yeah, 18 rows of teeth and an arsehole, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and then, so, so we thought we'd have a look to see exactly what it was that had got the Environment Agency into such a militaristic fervour, talking about operations and, and missions. And um, that... So Which the Environment Agency pointed out in a press release, quote, can pass itself off as a sardine. Sneaky fucker. Sneaky little fucker. I mean, I was about to stand up for it until he said no. that. Either that is a very big hand, or the top mouth gudgeon is quite small. But, did it, well... To be honest, if it can pass itself off as a sardine, then it deserves every tank that's coming to it <laughs> and every fucking <laughs> military operation. Screw you, Topmouth Gudgeon. Oh, so yeah, happy. That's the kind of thing we talk about. Uh, we're out of time. This is our podcast. We're, as Alice said, we're on a bit of a break at the moment. We'll be back in July, kind of ish. Ish. Uh, it's not as good as Dave's podcast. But it talks just about this kind of stuff all the time. <laughs> so you can find us. Uh, we're at the Babble Wagon, Sustainable Babble on iTunes. Thank you very much, and uh, see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you give them another round of applause as they go back to their seats? And finally, we have uh, John Emmett, who is, I think, going to take us into the world of building regulations. But I may have misbriefed you on that. We'll see. Put your hands together for John Emmett. Where Skadar wasn't uh, over, overbuilt, over-exaggerated, building regulations are pretty exciting, right? So this is, a, more broadly, this is a story about how world leaders came together to agree a treaty that created a vision for how we were going to stop global climate change and the ways that the failure of that treaty have played out in an office building in Hackney and what that means for the future of humanity. So... And building regulations, obviously. Part, part L, the best bit. So, every year, the UN has a big international summit to talk about climate change. And world leaders come from all over the place to agree on what actions we're going to take to avert this impending climate catastrophe. Well, they, they try to agree, um, because it's quite difficult, actually, to work out what is going to work for everybody. So was, even though everybody wants to sort out climate change, also countries are trying to balance that with their national economic interests and trying to compete with their rivals across the globe. Um, so that means that uh, you, you get a lot of a lot of arguments, basically. And they're not just trivial squabbles, really. They're not just, it's not just me being sarcastic about silly governments. Actually, there, there's, there's a lot of good reasons that they disagree. So there's a whole colonial history of how uh, the Industrial Revolution came to work out the way it did. There's a whole lot of stuff about who is the main people that have been creating the emissions uh, versus the people that are going to mainly suffer the most harmful effects from climate change. Um, and there's a whole world of issues going on, basically. Um, and for the last 17, 18 years, these people have been meeting every year in rooms all over the place across the world to try to work out what to do. 
And there's been lots of good words that people have had good discussions and there have been different pacts between different groups of countries, but there's been no legally binding hard action on what's going to actually happen. What are we going to do, guys? Um, but one time that they did actually get themselves together to agree legally binding action was way back in 1997 in Kyoto in Japan. And they agreed uh, what became the Kyoto Protocol, which had legally binding things that we were going to actually do. Great, okay, good. Um, and it wasn't perfect. Um, it only covered like a small fraction of the world's emissions. The US ended up pulling out, Canada then pulled out. Um, the, like, the period, the time period of the agreements is going to be up soon, so we need to sort something else out to go in its place. But okay, it's a start. Okay, good. Um, so, um, the, um, the uh, agreements that happened in Kyoto, they became law. That, in the world law level, then turns into EU law. So then there's laws in the European Parliament that say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Those EU level laws then come into the UK. So now we in the UK have got all these different laws, great, about what we're going to do. And it talks about uh, how we're going to do emissions trading and how we're going to do all sorts of things. Some of these mechanisms are maybe for a different story, a possibly a tragic story as well. Um, but one of the things they did is uh, sort out some uh, building regulations for how buildings are going to get more energy efficient. Um, so how did all these laws play out in practice? And we're going to look at this through the, the lens of the tragic life story of one building, an office building, Near, here in Hackney, called Susan. <laughs> now, Susan's story isn't unique, and her experiences have been played out many times across the UK, across London, by other ill-fated buildings doomed to a life of hardship and misery. <laughs> but this, this is Susan's story. <laughs> Susan was conceived in love. She was, when she was a twinkle in the eye of some idealistic young architects down the road in Mare Street, they were like, okay, guys, we're going to build one of the most sustainable buildings in East London. This is going to be amazing. It's going to have the most green features. It's going to be incredible. So they go with all their ideas, their amazing high principles. They go to the property developers, and the property developers are like, guys, amazing, great, I'm so glad we're working with you guys. We've got this magnificent building, it's going to be so good. I'm, I'm so pleased that you're happy with it. Like, okay, now go and do that building, go and do the project with like 70% of the budget, and then we're sorted, great. <laughs> so they're like, okay, okay, so, so we do that. And then the budget cuts mean that there are changes in the design. So then there's all sorts of arguments and compromises and discussions about, okay, what do these changes in the design mean? What's gonna, what bits are going to get cut? We're not going to cut the roof. We can't cut out the windows. What are we going to cut? So the architects are trying to make the case to the property developers. They're saying, OK, um, we, need to, we need to really be planning so that Susan, Susan is equipped for a lifetime, resilient to climate change, prepared for the challenges ahead in the 21st century. The architects are like, mm. the property developers say, well, OK, I mean, climate change, fine, but that's really, that's really in the future. That's really a long, you're looking a long way ahead, and that's a bit abstract for us. I mean, you're not really thinking on that. We're thinking about different timescales, really. You're thinking too far into the future. 
So the architect's like, okay, well, what time scales are you thinking on that? How long is this building going to last? And the property developers say, about 100 years, I don't know. So the architect's like, okay, 100 years. Right, okay, well, don't worry, don't worry. We'll, we'll sort something out. So the cuts that happen end up being stuff like Susan was going to have beautiful LED lighting, low energy, and she ends up with fluorescent, ugly tube lights. <laughs> she was going to have combined heat and power boilers to collect all the heat from the electricity that you generate and use it to warm the building and the radiators. Powered by biofuel, now it's going to be powered by gas. <laughs> she was going to have amazingly refined zoned controls on her heating and cooling so you could control all the radiators and the air conditioning in every little room. Now it's an on-off switch. <laughs> so... Not everything was bad, though. So the birth was fine. Um, she was very shiny. It was great. The mayor, the mayor came to celebrate. He cut the ribbon at an opening ceremony. It was beautiful. Everyone was really, everyone was really proud. But then things seemed to turn for the worse. So um, when Susan started school, her school reports, they weren't great. Um, by law, she was required to have an energy performance certificate, and it was, looked great. It was in a, a shiny glass frame in her very prestigious foyer. But it didn't do... It, didn't, it said she was doing really poorly. Um, and people realised that, actually, when... It, like, the reason that it looks really bad is that they, they expected all these high-energy-performing things, but the, the, the certificate doesn't take into account the actual electricity that you use in their building, like computers or fridges or telephones or stuff that you actually use in a building. So it underestimated somewhat the electricity consumption of the building. She left school. She became, she became an adult, a hard-working building for hard-working families. <laughs> and uh, as such, she had to pay her taxes. In the form of something called uh, the Carbon Reduction Commitment, she was, uh, had to enter a mandatory league, league table of all of the sort of top-emitting companies in the country. And she didn't do that well. Although, happily for Susan, she was a Man United fan. Uh, she was only three, that's okay. And uh, <laughs> Manchester United, in uh, the, uh, the first and also, which was also the penultimate year of this league table, Manchester United came joint first in the Carbon Reduction League table, um, which was good timing for them because they also, that was the year they lost the league title out to Manchester City, but Susan was still very happy that they'd at least won something in that year. Um, so that, that, was, that was very promising for everyone involved. Um, <laughs> then um, two years later, the government scrapped the league table, uh, which was a sad day for Manchester United's uh, trophy cabinet. It's not recovered since, but it was very good news for the Treasury because now instead of um, all of the money that had previously been going into uh, circulating between the people that are paying to enter the league, instead of, as was before, going to pay for energy efficiency measures in other companies in the league, it was now going directly as a form of energy tax to the government. Um, so, that, so that worked out well for somebody. But um, then later in life, things continued to get worse for Susan. She went into decline. Her heating controls didn't work quite like they used to. Um, and so people would, get, people would get cold 
People got cold in the winter in the offices. And that meant that people would, they would bring in their own personal electric heaters, sucking, uh, sucking energy. And then sometimes the people would put their personal heaters right under Susan's thermostat controls so that Susan thought that it was cold, that hotter than it really was. So she would turn down the heating even more. And there was a domino effect, another tragedy of the commons where there was uh, everyone brings in their own personal heater, all sucking up energy, all sucking electricity. Meanwhile, in the summer, the air conditioning hadn't been maintained properly and stopped working. Everyone was boiling hot. And so everybody came in to work with a portable air conditioning unit, opening the windows wide, flinging them open, hanging the weird alien elephant trunk silver thing out of the window, making it completely ineffective, <laughs> but sucking up energy, destroying the lifeblood of the building. And then... As she came into middle age, Susan began to feel, feel very terribly ill. The country became ravaged by droughts, by heat waves, electricity blackouts became increasingly common. The property developers looked to see if there were any opportunities for performing, perform surgery on her to retrofit some of the measures that were denied to her that should have been given to her in the start of her life but it was found not to be cost-effective. Her fate was sealed. One day, teams of men arrived in Hive's vests and metal machines. They started to claw at Susan's frail body, firstly plucking out stray carpet tiles and piling them into skips, scattering them about as they went. They're moving onto the brickwork, pulling at the brickwork, smashing at it in torrents of rubble. Soon she was collapsing in a stream of concrete, dust falling about the place until she was just a pile of blocks, iron rods bent, poking out of clumps of rubble. And in her dying breath, she thought of the words of Frederick Jameson, who said that <laughs> he, he means that these days it's somehow easier to imagine the complete destruction of the natural world than it is to imagine the demise of late capitalism, but that maybe that's somehow actually a failure of our imagination. <laughs> so why is it that we don't plan ahead? How is it that the grand plans of the Kyoto visionary leader, master people turned into weirdly ineffective building regulations that then, through short-sightedness, lead Susan to be taken, taken from us before her prime? <laughs> but Susan still has hope, despite this pessimistic view of society, because we know what we need to do. Or we, we, need to build, we need to build fairer societies. We need to build more liberal cities. Switch to renewables. So Susan started to think that, well, maybe if it's more of a tragedy of a failure of imagination, then maybe there is hope that we can work together to build a better and brighter and more sensible alternative. I, I bet John, because I thought, I don't know what he'll do, but it'll be really good. And it was. That was so good. Give him another round of applause. Um, 
I wanted just to end on, on some kind of hopeful note, having depressed everyone in the winter and probably a bit tonight. Um, but and, and just maybe give a hopeful note even about buildings in Hackney, although I think John tried to give us some kind of hope at the end of that too. Um, and that I wanted to talk a bit about how we imagine the future and about climate change as a story and about things that we talk about and the stories around climate change often being about visions of the future. And there's one kind of vision of the future, which is that, you know, we just all deal with it and we imagine some amazing revolution where we make Caroline Lucas the queen of the universe and then she abdicates and says, we all have the power, a bit like the end of Buffy, you know, where it all got spread out. And we live in this amazing, like anarchist ecological thing where we're all in harmony with each other and the planet and I, I don't think that's going to happen and there's another vision of the future which is kind of like well it's just the, the dystopic one you know the one where and and this might happen but the, you know the one where we just we keep going with burning as much fossil fuels as we are and we burn more of them and all the kind of really scary projections about what will happen to the world start to happen and you have like floods and drought at the same time and heat waves and and cold patches and people die and they starve and they drown and they die in the heat waves and the people who are left after all of that fight some horrible war over resources and it, it's just nasty but I, I don't I don't think that's going to happen either I think what's most the thing that actually keeps me awake at night that I'm most scared about is a kind of shitty middle ground which is always the case really isn't it which is where we don't really act as much as we could or we, we should um, we act a bit so we don't quite get to the kind of like what people who talk about climate projections talk about the four degrees warming at the moment when we're talking about the Paris talks happening in December that everyone's really talking a lot about climate change is big the thing that that John was talking about, the Kyoto, kind of the next Kyoto, but this one won't be really shit. Um, they talk about how we might stick to two degrees warming, which will still be shit. People talk about how that will be okay. No, that's still quite shit. But we might, we get that. So, I don't, But I think we might, we might reach that, or a little bit warmer than that, which will still be shit, but not super shit. But then all the things that go along with that, that stop us from being at the super shit level, the moving to giant um, solar farms that vaporise birds, or just actually lots of renewables and, and just keeping it in the ground like the Guardian tells us to, the people who will be in control of that will still be shits. Because there's a lot about our energy system that's fucked up other than the fact that we're burning fossil fuels. It's about who owns it and who controls it and who decides to make a giant solar farm that vaporises birds rather than working with the community about what kind of renewables they want and who owns it. And I, I think that's going to be most likely. And it's one of the things that I think when we're fighting to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, we also need to think about the other fights that we're going to have to go alongside it. Because that middle ground shit that pulls in another kind of dystopia at the same time is quite scary and it's quite likely. Um, and so here's a story of hope. Um, and it comes from the village of Borkham in Sussex, which you might have heard about in terms of the fracking protests in 2013. It was like the first place where they were going to test fracking in the UK. And we'd heard about fracking as this thing Americans did. And it sounded funny because it sounds a bit like fucking. And so like Daily Mail loved making headlines with it. Everyone was joking about it. And the environmentalists were like, no, we're not going to have that here. And Cadrilla and a couple of other firms are like, yeah, we can have that here. And George Osborne is like, yeah, we're going to have that here. And so they try it in, in, East, in West Sussex. And this little village didn't really know what was going on. And suddenly they had these people trying to frack. And, and they were told that it was dangerous. And other people were saying it was going to be awesome. And they were going to make loads of money. And they were kind of like, oh, it's just in our backyard. What the hell is this? And then all these environmentalists came down. And they started um, protesting. And there's Caroline Lucas, because she's a local MP. And there's like loads of other people getting arrested. The local police apparently spent 
four million um, just policing these protests. And there's all these journalists down there, and the local village is just like, oh, we don't know. I mean, do we like fracking? Don't we like fracking? And there's all these frackers, and all their lobbyists, and everyone's spinning around them at the same time. And they've just got, they're in the middle of this massive, big energy argument about the future of humanity. And they're just this tiny little village. And then, like, the journalists go home because they're a bit bored, because they don't have a short attention span. I'm an ex journalist, I can say that. Um, and then the, the protesters go, because also, um, you know, they had other things to do. And they kind of, some of them stayed and they kind of dwindled. And then even the frackers went. And this tiny little village is like, what are we going to do? But they, got, well, they were sort of pulled into this big energy fight. Well, we're going to do something positive. So we're going to go 100% solar. And everyone's like, yeah, good on you. They're not going to do it. But, you know, good on you. Nice little story. The fracking village goes 100% solar. And people kind of shared this story and thought it was cool, but didn't think they were going to do it. And they started off small. They put some solar panels on a cow shed, and they raised some money to put some on some schools. And everyone's like, well, you know, nice start. Nice that you're, you know, putting a little sticky plaster on this horrible gaping wound, which is climate change and our energy politics. But you know what? Fuck that, because this week they submitted a application for planning permission to build their own community-owned solar farm. It's not going to be one of those giant vapor, bird vaporizing things <laughs> they had in Nevada. It's a, as solar farms go, it's a relatively small one. It's a five megawatt one. But it's not only enough to power the village of Borkham, but another one just along the road. So not only are they going, going to go 100% solar, but they're going to have some energy to spare. And I think that's fucking awesome. Because above the fact that they're going 100% solar, they're going to own it. Their community is going to own it. And if you want to support them, you can look up. Um, their, if you Google Balkum, you'll find their project. When they start fundraising the solar farm, you can maybe chip in. But what you could really do is copy them and get involved in a project like that yourself. And that's where we come back to sad houses in Hackney or sad buildings in Hackney. Because Hackney actually has one of the best community energy projects I've seen alongside things like Balkum. So Google community energy Hackney. Or if you live in another part of London, set up your own one. Because there's all these sad buildings out here that we could put some solar panels on. And we could use it to repower our society and own that energy ourselves. And if that doesn't give you hope, well, I used to work a lot in science. And the science geeks tell me that probably antibiotic resistance will get us first. <laughs> and we'll all die in a big pile of really painful pus before the floods arrive. So let's hope. the sort of sadmin section I'm afraid uh, where I sort of talk about what we're, what we're doing what's coming up and stuff like that because uh, it's a podcast and you need to tell people that sort of stuff so you can follow uh, Stand Up Tragedy uh, on Twitter we're at Stand Up For Tragedy uh, you can also make friends with the tragedy on Facebook we like it when you, when you do that but you can also like, like our page if you like um, the podcast is available on iTunes and anywhere else pretty much where podcasts go to hang out on the internet we do live tragedy but we also do other forms of tragedy uh, as much as we can and we've got a blog where we represent written tragedy at Edinburgh we're, this year we're going to be doing an hour of tragedy every day apart from Tuesdays at the Banshee Labyrinth from 7.30 till 8.30 from the 8th to the 30th of August the run includes lots of exciting special editions including guest hosts Jenny Pascoe, Keith Jarrett and Samantha Mann. <laughs> 
collaborations with other voices, spoken word, cabaret, poetry goes pop, sketch comedy group, casual violence and more. So we've got a really excellent lineup going all the way through the festival. Keep an eye out uh, on our Facebook and our website for more details. Uh, and on the Tuesdays, we're going to be producing some live recordings of my, my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted. We'll be doing live recordings of them on the Tuesdays. And as well as the main show, we're also producing two solo shows, uh, one from me, uh, and one from uh, Radcliffe Royds. And we'll be previewing both of those at the Dog Star in Brixton on the 23rd of July. There we go. Sadly over. Give yourselves a round of applause for sitting through it. Well done. I like to front load a night with a lot of information that nobody really cares about to get you in the mood. This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from... Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and Reaction.